Thank you for choosing this podcast for the BGSM community. I'm Daniel Friedman, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with Dr. Kim Harmon about the latest in the world of concussion. Dr. Harmon is a professor in the Department of Family Practice and Departments of Family Medicine and Orthopedics and Sports Medicine at the University of Washington, as well as a past president of the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. She has over 20 years' experience as a team physician for the University of Washington and is currently the head physician for the university's American football team. Dr. Harmon, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Could you start by explaining our understanding of concussion in 2019 and how it's changed over the last few years? I think that the thing that has really stood out with the evolution of concussion and what it is, is really that it's a heterogeneous um, injury. And so it can be a lot of different things. I think that the recognition of, of concussion is certainly much more prevalent than it used than it used to be. People are more willing to report than they were before for the most part. And the fact that it can be different things, it can cause dizziness, it can cause emotional changes, it can cause headaches, that it has a variety of symptoms and may prevent present in, in a variety of different ways, I think is sort of one of the things that has really uh, come to the forefront over the last couple of years. In 2013, You led the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine position statement on concussion in sport, which was a seminal document in sports-related concussion management that has now been cited over a thousand times. Could you provide our listeners with a brief overview of the statement and explain its initial objective? So the statement in 2013 was really primarily targeted at sports physicians, people who were on the sideline and taking care of sports concussion and was aimed at giving people a really practical sort of hands-on, hands how-to um, guide in terms of the latest evidence in concussion, and then how to apply that sort of clinically. And so it took what had been done before by the the, cons- uh, the consensus group in concussion and tried to really, I think, make it practical and um, make it really usable for the sports physician. Of course, it could be used by other people who take care of concussions too, like athletic trainers or, or people in the office, but it was primarily intended for the sports physician and, and trying to represent the latest and greatest, but really make it practical and hands-on. And what were some of the key messages coming from that 2013 position statement? I think that in 2013, um, what we really wanted people to know was that one of the big topics then was baseline testing with computerized testing and and was that necessary was it additive um and so one of the things that we looked at quite deeply in that paper was computerized neuropsychological testing and its utility for baseline testing and said you know it's helpful to have but it isn't necessarily necessary to have the other thing that i think that we really wanted to emphasize in that message was that we've got all these sort of standardized tests for concussion, but the, the the sensitivity and specificity of those may not be great. And so really what's important when you're looking to diagnose concussion is that you know the athlete well, that you know um, hopefully whether they're likely to be straightforward with you or or maybe more likely to mask their symptoms. And it's not just the test themselves, but the way they take the test. And so 
I think recognizing the beyond symptoms, the the potentially limited utility of some of the, the diagnosis tools that we're using at the time. Who was part of the group or panel that developed that statement? So on the 2013 statement, what we were looking for in terms of, of the people that were in the writing group were primarily people that had sideline experience and that were sort of boots on the ground taking care of people with concussion. And then we wanted to augment that with people who were out there doing the research and um, sort of on the cutting edge of recommending concussion policy. And so we had several people that were on the, the uh, concussion consensus group, um, but also a lot of clinicians, college clinicians, pro clinicians, and high school and youth clinicians. And so we really wanted it to be useful for the, for the clinicians, so we included a lot of clinicians on that paper. I'd now like to take you forward to 2018, and I understand that there is a more recent updated statement. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah. So the 2018 statement is just coming out, and we're really excited about it. There has been a, a multitude of research that has occurred over the last five years since we initially wrote the 2013 statement. And so the idea behind the statement was that we are just going to do an update, do a review of the literature, and with the same objectives as the 2013 in terms of really making this sort of useful and hands-on for the clinician, but also recognizing all the research that's happened in the last five years and, and trying to make sure that, that we maybe got a few new points or developing points out to um, our readership. The, the people that were selected for this 2018 concussion statement, there's a focus like in the 2013 in people who were clinicians taking care of athletes, but also involved in some sort of concussion research and then sort of bringing in our outside experts. So we did the same strategy as we did the first time, but, but probably almost without exception, everybody on the statements involved in some sort of research, even if they're clinicians and, uh, and also trying to, we tried to get a wide variety of perspectives. So one of the things that uh, was really interesting on the statement is we had people with significantly different opinions and really trying to meld that together into, into an agreement and, and something that was useful for our members was an exercise that was at times frustrating, but I really think we came up with a, a good product in the end. And I think that the position statement was better because of the diversity of opinions. What does the new 2018 statement add to something like the 2017 Berlin concussion consensus statement? Or maybe how does it complement it? I think complimented is the best way to describe it because certainly um, the most recent Berlin concussion statement was um, fantastic. It had all the systematic reviews and in um, a large part, we relied on systematic reviews when we wrote this um, position statement. And a lot of the systematic reviews were the ones that were done for the Berlin um, statement. And so I think how this one sort of complements that is that we were not so stringently held to sort of the rules of evidence. So we tried to remain 
evidence-based, but again, make it usable for that clinician and make sure that some of the emerging concepts in concussion that may not have a huge evidence base were at least sort of recognized that this is happening, this is the information that's out there, it may not be standard, but as a sports physician, you should probably know about this stuff because you're going to hear about it. And, and this is sort of what the literature to date has produced. What are some of those emerging topics that you mentioned? I think the emerging topics are, are primarily two. And one would be, you know, five years ago, the standard treatment for concussion was really sort of don't do anything that makes it worse sometimes characterized as the dark room or cocoon therapy in terms of no activity after you had a concussion until all your symptoms were gone and then beginning a return to play progression. And it's been increasingly recognized. It was recognized by Berlin, the role of exercise in treating concussion, um, becoming more active soon, I think is sort of where the Berlin left it off. But, but, we're also getting into this, this area of potentially using exercise as a treatment to, to uh, help with symptoms, uh, although that's still experimental. But so one area that we really talked about was the concept of becoming more active sooner after concussion. I think the other aspect would be recognizing that there are different systems that people have problems with when they get a concussion. So we sort of looked at dizziness and balance back in 2013, but really I don't think didn't have the sort of fully developed concept of um, doing a vestibular exam, um, the use of using vestibular ocular sort of um, methods for diagnosing and sort of following concussion. And this is all really new stuff that's just being introduced. And, and we wanted to make sure that our members and that our readers were sort of up on the, the sort of what the state is right now. There's still a lot more to come with that, but just in terms of the diversity of, of maybe different systems that are affected by concussion and being a more heterogeneous injury than, than I think we used to think of it as, as more homogeneous injury causing heterogeneous symptoms, if that makes any sense. If we can continue to focus on treating or managing athletes with concussion, how do you think you personally on the sidelines or within the University of Washington are managing athletes with concussion differently compared to, say, five years ago? Well, I think that we are much quicker to sort of pull somebody off and screen them for concussion. Um, we have systems in place now where we have multiple people sort of looking for any signs, any visual signs of concussion. So we've got spotters, we've got video review, and we didn't have any of that five years ago. And so we're really actively scouting for signs of concussion in our players. And then, you know, definitely if we're concerned about somebody, uh, we will screen them and examine them and make sure that um, they're either pulled if we're worried about them or sent back, but but we feel better about it because we've had a chance to look at them. So I think sort of a more active approach to um, making sure that we um, are aware of everybody who might have a concussion. So you know, if somebody gets concussed, then we'll screen them daily for symptoms and look at their symptom severity and at their, their symptom burden. You know, a lot of people will actually get concussed. They'll have symptoms 
you know, uh, during the game or during the practice and they'll be gone by the next day. If they're gone by the next day or relatively quickly, we actually start exercising them right away. And we'll um, sort of just get them moving, make sure their symptoms don't increase and um, um, see how that, that goes. If they've been and a little bit what we do with people sort of depends on, uh, again, how they present and what their symptoms do. If um, they don't have any symptoms, we get them moving right away. And if after 24 hours they haven't had a recurrence of their symptoms, we'll put them in our return to play protocol, where which is actually pretty hard. So by that's uh, they're, they're 28, 48 hours out, and they'll um, do some biking. They'll do some um, up-downs. They'll do some running. They'll do some agility work. And if that all goes well without having a return of symptoms, then we can um, get them back to doing some more sports-specific activity the next day, followed by non-contact activity, followed by contact activity, and then, assuming that all goes well, return to play. If, on the other hand, somebody has persistent symptoms when we see them back the next day, we give those a little bit of uh, time to resolve, so 24 or 48 hours, and hopefully by that time they're at least stable and not getting worse. And if at 48 hours they've still got some symptoms, we'll still go ahead and we'll try some real light exercise, just putting them on a bike and seeing if their symptoms don't increase. A lot of times our athletes will actually feel a little bit better after the exercise. And we just do a, a real limited amount if they have symptoms. And if they tolerate, then we gradually increase it. If they're continuing to get better, then we'll get them back into our return to play protocol. If after, say, three, four days, that sort of limited exercise, their symptoms aren't really resolving, that sort of thing, then we'll actually do a formal buffalo concussion treadmill exercise test. And so that's a test where you increase the, um, the um, intensity on the treadmill by a prescribed amount, um, do symptom checks every couple minutes, and do blood pressure checks. And then when you get to a point where the symptoms increase, you know, heart rate and half people exercise at 80% of that. And so if things don't, you know, we have to remember that the vast majority of concussion symptoms sort of go away on their own, sort of despite what we do. And so we don't want to sort of over manage something that's going to happen on its own. But we found that if we do get people exercising, it certainly helps the athletes mentally. I think it remains to be seen in terms of the literature, whether it uh, speeds the resolution of concussion or not, but our athletes feel better. And so if they've had persistent symptoms for, you know, four or five days, we'll do the Buffalo uh, concussion exercise treadmill test and then get them on a prescribed exercise program. And then when they're able to do that, then we'll uh, get them into our, our return to play protocol. If they ever get symptoms during their return to play protocol, then we pull them back out, sort of go down to the level that didn't cause symptoms before and, and restart them a day or two later. And from the time of diagnosis of concussion until the return to play protocol, what sort of time frame are we looking at? Well, it depends on the athlete and their symptoms. And so if somebody had some, uh, let's say they were staggering on the field, um, they come off, they denied symptoms, they passed all their concussion tests, and really other than kind of the fact that they had some obvious disequilibrium on the field, um, those were their only symptoms of concussion, that's somebody that's going to probably 
recover pretty quickly and we can put them into our return to play protocol uh, within 24, 48 hours and get them back on the field in, in a week. You know, if anybody has symptoms that go on for 24, 48 hours, then that's somebody that's going to take a minimum of sort of, we, I think of this in terms of games, of in terms of two weeks to get back. So they'll miss a game um, at least. And, you know, most of our kids are probably missing one game if they if they have a concussion. But, but there's some that, you know, what we call a concussion now five years ago or 10 years ago and certainly 20 years ago, we wouldn't have called a concussion at all. I can recall 30 years ago as an athletic trainer, you know, kids not knowing who they were and, uh, and, and us uh, sort of giving them till halftime to rest and then giving them their helmet back. And so certainly a far cry from that. How does the return to play protocol differ when comparing college-aged athletes to children and adolescents? Yeah, I think that what we're beginning to see in the emerging data is that it takes high school and certainly uh, kids younger than that longer to recover. And so um, the nice thing about being a college team physician is that I see these kids every day and can really monitor their activity and monitor them very closely. And that's I also take care of high school, and um, it's different in my high school athletes where I don't see them as closely. I can't, uh, I don't have the resources to sort of give them prescribed and supervised exercise. And so um, not only does it physiologically take longer for these younger athletes to get better, there's also not sort of the intensive resources available to monitor a, a very quick return to play. And so, um, in high school and middle school, it, it takes longer than that for kids to get back. The position statement highlights the need to increase efforts to prevent sports-related concussion. What is being done currently in the world of college football to reduce the incidence, severity, and complications of concussion, both in training and on game day? Okay, so what, what I've seen here at the University of Washington within the Pac-12 has been, you know, there's definitely been a decrease in contact practices. And so if there's less contact, then um, you're theoretically going to get less concussions. And we've noticed a decrease in our concussions, but also sort of all our injuries with less contact. And so probably practicing smarter than just practicing sort of more and um, and and uh, um, with the, the contact piece. We've also looked at different tackling techniques. And so the so-called rugby-style tackling techniques, we've taken the head out of the tackle. And our coaches are really good about teaching tackling te- a technique that's different than it was five or ten years ago to our kids. And then I think the other things that we've done to try and prevent uh, concussion are from sort of a more top-down sort of way in, in there's really been an emphasis on rules, in particular targeting and using the head as a weapon. And so certainly there is an emphasis with officials to call that more frequently and uh, when, when it's there and, and the enforcement, the penalty from that is, is pretty significant. And so you want to avoid it not only because of the injury, but there's incentive to um, avoid it because of, of what it can do to your game. And then we're also, um, so I think looking at equipment changes. And so there's different helmets that are coming out and we're making sure the helmet fit is good. So there's all sorts of exciting things that I think range from tackling and practicing 
to rules enforcement to equipment changes. Dr. Harmon, I think that's a great place to end it. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you very, very much for your time. All right. Thanks, Dan. If our listeners would like to find out more about you or your work, where should they go? I think one good way is just to actually just PubMed me and you can look at sort of everything that we've uh, written and and that's certainly easily available. Um, I think the other thing that our, our listeners should consider checking out is the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine annual meeting that's in Houston this year. And so I'll be talking a little bit about the statement at that meeting, but there's also just a, a multitude of really great cutting edge sports medicine topics there. It's a great meeting and I'd encourage all, all the listeners to consider that uh, as, as a potential continuing education opportunity. You've been listening to a BJSM podcast with Dr. Kim Harmon. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends or leave us a comment and connect through our social media channels. You can also follow all things BJSM via our app, where you can find more podcasts, our latest articles, and other content. As always, we hope you have a physically active day.